Welcome to the Gangster Museum of America After Dark. And now, here's your host, Robert Rains. Thank you, Steve. Tonight, we're going to do something a little bit different here. Almost every person we've interviewed, especially anybody in some law enforcement capacity, has talked about Maxine Harris. Maxine, for those of you who haven't heard any of our previous podcasts or don't know about the history of Hot Springs, had three houses of ill repute, one at the end of Prospect, which is now a bar called Maxine's, still operating, another one, the mansion, and then eventually she had a house on Whittington Avenue around Whittington Park. But due to the fact that Maxine had a lot of girls, she had a pretty varied clientele. She entertained a lot of customers from a lot of different walks of life. So recently, we uh, were able to enjoy a reenactment of her book, Call Me Madam, which happens to be the biggest selling book in the Gangster Museum of America gift shop. We're going to play an excerpt from that reenactment, and we're going to pick up when Maxine is talking about having to testify in a grand jury setting. The grand jury was convened to try to indict Q. Byram Hurst, Senator Q. Byram Hurst, by the way, an Arkansas senator. And Maxine was one of many that testified in that grand jury setting. What we're going to do is just pick Maxine up talking about that. And I'll be back in just a little bit to uh, fill in some of the blanks for you. Hit it, Steve. Coming right at you. One lady got appointed to the grand jury that they didn't intend to get on there. Her name was They meant for her husband to be called, but somebody had made a mistake and put the name Mrs. instead of Mr. She knew that I was hot about the raw deal that I had gotten, so she contacted me to ask if I'd appear before the grand jury to tell them what I knew about the underworld figures that were taking over the town. I told her, yeah, I'd be glad to go before the grand jury and tell them what I know. That's exactly what I did. I told everything I knew about all those sorry son of a bitches, and I told them exactly how it was, and I knew I had enough to hang them all. My testimony was heard in private, or so I thought at the time. About a year later, one of the men on the jury told me that there was a hidden microphone beneath the table where the jury and the witnesses sat. I was wired, so that the sound went into the next room where Harris, Hurst, Herbert, Dobbs, and Madden were waiting their turn. So they heard every damn thing I had to say about them. Lord, their ears must have nearly sung off their head. When the investigation was over, the grand jury reported that they had found no wrongdoing. To no one's surprise. Mrs. called soon after and said, Well, I figured it'd turn out like this, Maxine. They never intended to do anything with this in the first place. 
I said, you know how crummy the system works here as well as I do. The whole thing is so corrupt. There ain't anything that you can get done about it. You can fight them and win, so you might as well just join their party. They're going to win every time. With those words in mind, I asked if she would loan me the money to get started again. She let me rent a place that she owned, the Virginia Motel, with the first four months free for cleaning it up. I mortgaged my home to her for $5,000, and by God, I was in business again. At first, I was running legitimately because I knew Dobbs <laughs> would not let me have it any other way. I rented rooms, race trackers, and people who came in for town for a few days gambling at the casinos. In the meantime, Worth was out on parole and staying with the I knew Worth was a thorn in Dobbs's old side. I knew he was a thorn in all their sides. And if I ever hoped to be allowed to have any girls working for me again, I'd have to talk to him about Worth. As I went up to the courthouse to find him, I met him coming down the walk, stepping in front of me. You're just the gentleman I'd like to see. Don't start with me, Maxine, he snarled at me. Catching him by the arm, I said, listen, God damn it. I'm talking to you and you fixing to listen. As we walked down on the sidewalk, I said, I want to ask you something. I know that you've been jealous of Worth and you've hated him since the day I brought him to this town. If I divorce Worth Gregory, will you let me operate my house so that I can make some money? He stopped dead in his tracks and he looked at me long and hard and he answered, Yeah, Maxine, I will. If you'll divorce him and bring the divorce papers to prove that you have, then you can open back up again. Several people, including one sheriff's deputy, had told me that the old judge was sweet on me. I had dismissed it as idle talk until now, but they had told me that if I hadn't married Worth that he would have probably treated me a whole lot different. I went over to Miss and I told Worth what had been said. After listening quietly, he said, yes, Maxine. I'll give you a divorce if that's what it takes for letting you reopen and get your business going again. So Hearst filed the papers for me and the divorce went through. As far as Worth and I were concerned, it was only a piece of paper though. He was still my close companion and my protector. And once again, I was madam of a house. The people she was talking about in that earlier segment, Worth, is Worth Gregory. Ended up being her husband and she was quite attracted to him, thought he was a lawyer, when in fact, he was actually a pimp. He was from Longview, Texas. The Dobbs she refers to is P.E. Dobbs, who was a longtime judge here in Hot Springs and was kind of in on with the good old boys. Dane Harris, who was our last boss gambler. Cube Armhurst, who was a big attorney here in Hot Springs. Walter Bear, which she referred to as Herbert, which actually probably was prosecuting attorney at that time. And of course, my favorite, Oney Madden. And although Q. Byram Hurst would eventually be acquitted, Maxine Harris-Jones had already poisoned the well from which she drank. 
the news that Hearst had been indicted for tax evasion hit the papers a few days later. They all thought it was my testimony that indicted him, but there were a lot of people that testified against him. It wasn't just me. Besides, I didn't really talk against him. I just showed my books and told the truth, as I was sworn to do. They hadn't hesitated to put me out of business that I had been in for 18 years because I wouldn't join the syndicate. I felt if they were going to play that game, then I'd just join in and play it too. As the time for my trial approached, it was obvious that the FBI wasn't going to take any action on what I'd told them. When I talked to a friend of mine from Florida about it, a man named Rice, he said, I'm going to give you the U.S. Attorney General's private number and you can talk to him and tell him about the situation in Hot Springs. I called that number he gave me and I told whoever answered the phone that it was the mob had taken over in Hot Springs and how I needed some help. Well, when my phone rang less than one hour later, Bobby Kennedy was on the line. When I told him what was happening in Hot Springs, he said, I'm gonna send some men in. Don't use Mr. Whelan or any men from Little Rock, I told him. I've already told them all what's going on and they won't do a thing. Kennedy said, well, I'll send some men out of Washington then. In the meantime, I had my trial to get through and I didn't have anybody to represent me because Hearst was hot and Sam Anderson refused to help me. The only person that I knew to get was Pug Trainer. He sold me out to the mobsters, and I'll never be able to forget that. He turned me around, and as I carry that like a wound in my heart to this day, I was officially charged with pandering, which is running a house of prostitution. Larry Kent, the cab driver, never did show up to testify against me. He was in bad health anyway, so he just went into the hospital to keep from having to appear. Emily wouldn't have testified, but they subpoenaed her, and Emily wouldn't say anything against me, but they put Bobby on the stand, and she had plenty to say. I knew for sure that she had been planted in my house. They had bought off Trainer too, and never would let me get up on the stand to speak on my own behalf. They knew if I got up there that I'd lower the boom on them. I was going to tell them a story that they would never forget. The internal revenue was allowed into the courtroom, but no news reporters were permitted to cover the trial. Oh, the cards were stacked against me. I knew I'd be found guilty, and that that old son of a bitch Dobbs, oh, he would waste no time in sentencing me to the penitentiary. I just never figured the sentence would be over six months. Sure enough, they found me guilty. And I was bowled over, though, when I was sentenced to two years in Cummins Prison. My bond was set, and the buzzard, which is Benny Hazen, had come to symbolize, got another bite out of me for serving as the bondsman. Pug Trainer, my attorney, told the court that he was going to appeal the case. I went on back home to wait for the appeal to come up, trusting my attorney to take care of it as he said that he would. I was young and ignorant. Didn't even know that it cost $500 to get it typed up and sent in, and Trainer sure as hell didn't tell me that fact. He just waited until the time had run out for the appeal of the case. I found all of this out when old Dobbs sent a car out to my house to pick me up so that I could be taken to prison the next morning. 
They wouldn't let me talk to anybody about it or do anything except one phone call to my family. So the only thing I could do was call my brother and tell him what happened. He called somebody over in the Arkansas Supreme Court to see if he could find out what happened. And they told him that Mr. Trainer had never filed a brief with them, but that they would see to it that he was given another chance to file before they take me to the penitentiary. The next morning, they had me in the car on the way to prison when a call came over the radio to take me back to county jail by order of the Supreme Court judge. They returned me, and Pug Trainer came up and talked to me. That son of a bitch still didn't do anything about it, and I didn't know enough about the law to force the issue and demand my rights. I was just something to be gotten rid of because I was a threat to too many people in high places in town. I was in effect, I guess you'd call me, a political prisoner. Foreclosed the mortgage she had held on my home the first moment she was legally able to do it. I didn't know her very much on the first 5000 I'd borrowed from her, but she acquired a valuable piece of property for a tiny outlay of money on her part. <sighs> I guess she'd just been waiting for her chance. Kenneth McKinney, the sheriff's deputy, was one who drove me to the Pine Bluff interim prison. We'd known each other a long time, and he was a decent and kind man. On the way there, he said to me, You know, Maxine, if it wasn't for losing my job, I'd let you out of this car and catch the plane for Mexico. But if I did that, you know, they'd put me in prison in your place. You got a raw deal, though. Kenneth took me by to see my sister before we got to prison. She worked in Pine Bluff at the time. I walked up to her workstation and I said, I'm on my way to the penitentiary now. I came to tell you goodbye. Oh, it just tore her up and she started to cry. I asked her, what are you crying for? I've got to go and I'm going and crying ain't going to change anything. But don't you worry about me. I'll make the best of it. I'm going to be okay. She asked me if I needed any money and made me take a $20 bill. I didn't want her to visit me. I didn't want any of my family to see me in that place. So Maxine Jones goes to prison, Cummins Prison to be exact, which is located a little bit south of Pine Bluff, which is located about 80 miles southeast of Hot Springs. We're gonna rejoin Maxine, still incarcerated and still fighting. Bobby Kennedy kept his promise to me. The FBI paid me a visit while I was at Cummins. They searched the room that we were in to talk to make sure that there were no bugs planted in it and that nobody could listen to our conversation. I told them the whole story of Hot Springs, how long I'd been a madam, and how much money I'd put out to all them son of a bitches. The town was pretty well shut down when the FBI arrived, though, and old Senator had gotten the wind of what had happened, and he notified the governor, and then word was sent down to Oni and to all of them to shut down until things cooled off. So the 19 men that Kennedy sent from Washington did not find too much evidence. Right after that, about two months after I entered Cummins, I was subpoenaed to come to Hot Springs to testify against Senator Hurst. Before I left to attend the trial, Captain Dan came over to the barracks and said, Maxine, I got something to tell you. 
when you go back over to Hot Springs to testify, you'll be like Worth. You won't leave here alive. I knew what he meant. I'd be killed. And I was in no position to defend myself. I was brought to Little Rock where I was kept in the county jail at night. The U.S. Marshal and his wife went out of their way to be so nice to me while I was there. Edward Jones only had a few more months left to serve in prison, and he was called to testify, too. So they would only drive us over to Hot Springs together in the mornings to attend the trial. They put handcuffs on Edward, and I told the Marshal, you don't have to put handcuffs on him. He's not going anywhere. There were so many people testifying that day that I never did get on the stand. When I finally did get up there, they asked me a lot of questions and I answered some of them that pertained to what they had already testified at the grand jury. I had already said all of that. They were already were all aware of what my business ledgers had shown anyway, but a lot of it I soft-pedaled and then denied some of the things. I knew that the mob was behind the threat that Strap had passed on to me at Cummins, and I knew they'd act on that damn threat. When I returned back to Little Rock that evening, the marshal said, Maxine, you handled yourself well on the stand. I don't think that they'll hurt you now. I was granted another emergency leave from Cummins after that. I had to testify in court again, but this time it was regarding some family business and a property dispute. I was given a six-day furlough and allowed to stay at my brother's home in Warren. Oh, it was wonderful to be home again. That bed at my brother's house looked so big I felt like I was in heaven. Testifying in court wasn't the most important thing on my mind during that visit home, though. I was going to see my mama again. I knew she had felt so hurt because I had left without saying goodbye, and I had never even written to her. In answer to her questions about me, my family would just say I'd gone on a long visit to California. They were afraid her heart couldn't stand the shock of being told the truth, so the family all joined together to shield her from the knowledge that her daughter was in prison. Her health was failing, and she was in a small family-style nursing home in Warren. Oh, her face lit up when I walked in that room, and she just screamed, Maxine, where have you been? Mama, you know what they say, a bad penny will turn up every once in a while. <laughs> she smiled and hugged me and she said, honey, I know where you've been. I know you've been in prison. They all thought I didn't know better, but I knew all the time. I felt everything was all right then and then we visited and talked together for a long time. Oh, when it was time to say goodbye, I said, Mama, I got to go back for a couple of months, but then I'll be home again. I thought I was telling her the truth at the time because I'd be eligible for parole after serving eight months of my sentence. When I got back to the prison gate 30 minutes later, I presented myself to the guard to be taken back inside. And he said, you can't come in here. I have no orders whatsoever for you to be let back in here. I told him to call the captain to verify my expected arrival, and Dan said, You all let Maxine back in here now. Now, I've heard of people breaking out of prison, <laughs> but this is the first time I've ever heard someone not being let back inside, though. <laughs> 
I'm going to tell you one thing. A hearty laugh and a sense of humor can help a person face anything, even if it's to return to prison bars. That was the hardest eight months of my life before I was made a trustee and before I came up to the parole board. Lord, I felt like I had lost everything and I had been stripped bare of everything that made my life worth living. There had been a lot of sleepless nights lying on that old cot knowing that I was in a place and I couldn't leave and that there was just no way out. It was with high hopes that I walked into the room to have my parole hearing. I had worked hard, I'd obeyed the rules, and I kept my goddamn nose clean. There was no reason to think my parole wouldn't be granted. Well, when I entered that room, I saw a group of men, and every one of which had been at my whorehouse as a customer. Maxine, we can't let you go right now, the bastard said. The governor's coming up for re-election. We'll just keep you for a few more months until the next hearing, and then we're going to let you go. Before I went, before that board again, my sister came to see me, and I asked her to come because I had an errand I wanted her to do for me. I told her to go up to the courthouse there and see who was one of the governor's men and tell him that I had had enough evidence in a safety deposit box to put them all away from the governor on down. I said, tell them that if they don't let me out of here at the next hearing, I'll have my brother turn the key to that box over to the FBI. Lord, my health was so bad too by then, I couldn't afford to wait around and just hope those bastards had let me out as they'd promised. Oh, hell, I needed to get out of this place and I was prepared to use whatever means I had to do to get that latch out to get me the hell out of there. Wow. A special thanks to Christy McBrayer, who plays the role of Maxine when we do uh, reenactments here at the Gangster Museum of America. And the book Call Me Madam is on sale here at the Gangster Museum of America in the Hattery, our gift shop. And I urge everyone to get a copy of it because Maxine will explain to you about working in and running a house of prostitution that you just really can't believe I tell a lot of people when they buy the book, don't be reading this in church and lay it down in the pew. And also Maxine herself, the real Maxine, appears in our casino gallery by way of a videotape, so that's always a highlight of the tours of the Gangster Museum of America. Steve, you actually have uh, some information that appeared in the Sentinel Record, our newspaper, didn't you? As a matter of fact, Maxine, from the book Call Me Madam, The Life and Times of a Hot Springs Madam by Maxine Temple Jones, cites an article from the Hot Springs Sentinel Record on January 18, 1993, that the mansion, a famous brothel located on the corner of Convention Boulevard and Palm Street, run by the infamous Maxine Jones in the 50s and 60s, was gutted by an early morning fire. Maxine remembered that the men who visited her establishments were perfect gentlemen. Her clients included doctors, lawyers, senators, congressmen, and judges, and they treated the girls very well. And to add to that, Steve, former President Bill Clinton remembered Maxine and said she was quite a character. We'll be back again next week for another great piece of Hot Springs history on TGMOA After Dark.